May I just say, as someone who is dyslexic, reading long gospels in public is terrifying. And it just gets worse as I go along if I'm doing well, because I'm like, all right, haven't messed it up yet. And then by the end, I'm like, am I even reading English? Because they don't really make sense to me anymore, because I'm so hypercritical, just so you know what's going on in my head when I read the gospel. But anyway, <laughs> you cannot love that which you do not know. I've said this many times. So let's all try and learn a little bit today so we can fall more in love with Jesus and our liturgy. And so to do that, I'm going to ask you to uh, gaze up on our icon today. I tried buying a laser pointer, but it turns out you can't see it on these background colors. So low-fi is, or low-tech is still the best and just kind of feels cool. I feel like one of those people from uh, Star Wars in the sand, but anyway. All right. So this icon is pretty easy to decipher, right? But it's important to go over some of the things that are here just so that we all remember them. Because it may, it may look like I don't really need to talk about this picture. Of all the icons that we've had throughout the year, this one seems like it's the easiest to understand. But let's start with the obvious, just in case, okay? So there are five important subjects here in the crucifixion image. Jesus is the central focus and the figure of the composition. Yes, that's easy to see. But the image of Jesus doesn't just exist in a floating space. So first, direct your eyes to the background here. The space in between the figures. And note that this is a wall. It's the wall of the city of Jerusalem. And the crucifixion always happens outside of the walls of Jerusalem, as we hear from the scriptures. But it does so to fulfill a prophecy about the Messiah. So already our background is telling us that this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. Because why? His death has first of all taken place outside of Jerusalem. Back in ancient Israel, there was a custom once a year on the feast that would forgive all the sins. The high priest would whisper onto a goat all the sins of the people. And I'm pretty sure they had to tell him their sins first in order for him to know. So there's your basis for confession, whatever. Anyway, he would whisper it onto the goat, and then they would kick the goat out of the people, and it would wander into the desert until it died. This is the origin of the word scapegoat, not a lie. I'm not kidding. This is where it comes from. You whisper the sins on the goat, the goat dies for you outside. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He dies for you outside of the city to take away your sins. This is prophecy. This is prophecy fulfilled. There are other prophecies in his crucifixion that also need to be fulfilled. So please, direct your eyes first. His hands and feet are pierced, as we can see in the image clearly. Now, this icon does a great image in showing a crossbeam that we as Catholics are not very much used to seeing. This crossbeam for his foot, feet to stand on. This is a symbol that is rich in Byzantine or Orthodox iconography. Whatever it's called, the study of iconography. There it is, found it. All right. <laughs> Told you, I'm dyslexic. All right. So it's a symbol that is not really uh, natural to us, but it's very natural to our brothers and sisters. But it's very crucial that his hands and feet are pierced because it was prophesied in Psalm 22, verse 16, and in the Gospel of John 20. I'm sorry, it's lived out in John 20, 25. The Messiah's bones would not be broken. We know this from the Passion, right? His legs are intact. You do not see any images of breakage. This is important too because not a bone could be broken if he is truly Messiah. 
But this was common practice among those who were crucified to have their legs broken. And we hear about that in the gospel. It's to aid death faster. So you cannot push up and gather air. And more importantly, push air out. Because when you are being crucified, it's actually a suffocation death that you are suffering from buildup of hypoxia. I'm sorry, CO2. Because you cannot breathe out. So not a bone could be broken in his legs. This is Psalm 22, verse 17, and lived out in John 19, verse 33. We are familiar with the motif of them casting lots for his clothes. This was also prophesied, Psalm 22, verse 18, lived out in Matthew 27, verse 35. He should be naked on this icon, but for the sake of decency and art, we cover him. But he was naked and humiliated, despised for our sin. Note the shape of his body. Starts one way, comes down, and wraps back and forth, almost as if it is a snake wrapped upon the pole that would heal the people from the book of Genesis when Moses was leading them through the desert. Those who were bit by the seraph serpents were healed when they looked upon the bronze serpent on the pole. This is why his body takes the shape in the iconography to mimic the sign of salvation that was prophesied. Isaiah 53 has a classic messianic prophecy known as the suffering servant prophecy. And it also details the death of the Messiah, that he would be the, the recompense for sins for his people. More than 700 years before Jesus was even born, Isaiah prophesies details about his life and death. First, he says in Isaiah 53, verse 3, that he must be rejected by the people. This is lived out in Luke 13, 34. The Messiah will be killed as vicarious sacrifice for the sins of his people, prophesied in Isaiah 53, 5 through 9, lived out in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The Messiah will be killed among criminals, Sorry, he will be with criminals among his death. Isaiah 53, verse 12, and we see it not in this icon, but you know who is classically next to him, the good and the bad thief, the repentant sinner, Saint Dismas, the first confirmed Catholic saint, and the other one. <laughs> How can a man crucified among criminals do such signs? This is the symbol, or this is the line that we hear from today's gospel. Next, we see Mary, the mother of God, over here on the left-hand side of the cross, indicated by her initials, which I know Tom Noble told me what they are, and I forget what it is in the real language, so I'm going to call it M-P-O-Y, but I know that's not right, Tom. He can tell you what they really stand for. Tom is an expert. But this is the mother of God. And then we have on the other side, John the Apostle, John the Evangelist, as he is written up here, the young one without a beard, the one whom Jesus loved. Think about who is here in the most difficult moments of the life of Jesus. God's providence being what it was, he could have had his whole 12 apostles there. He could have inspired them all to overcome fear. When the bottom dollar hit and everything came down to brass tacks, the ones that Jesus needed in his final moments were his mother and his favorite two disciples. We have a story in the Old Testament in the book of Maccabees about a mother of seven Jewish sons who is watching them be tortured and put to death in front of her eyes. 
because they will not abandon the Lord and eat pork. The mother is recorded as exhorting her sons to die valiantly for their faith. How much more would the mother of all humanity inspire the Son of God in his biggest moments of trial? Jesus chose his mother to be there to draw strength from. He also chose his two favorite disciples. If you think Peter was his favorite just because he made him the Pope, you're absolutely wrong. Jesus at one time had 72 disciples. He sends them out. He then has his favorite 12 among those he names apostles. Of those, he has his favorites, Peter, James, and John. And yet, they are not there with Jesus. Mary, his mother, Mary Magdalene, as it is written in the bottom corner here, and John, none of them a pope, all received an honor greater than being named the Supreme Pontiff. For they had the privilege to console the aching heart of Jesus as he hung on the cross. This honor is above any other honor. They saw who Jesus was with their eyes of faith, and they were not willing to abandon him in his time of need. Mary Magdalene was one of the last people to see him alive, and she was the very first person to see the resurrected Christ. Even before Peter and John, Mary Magdalene wasn't there because she was the wife of Christ. She was there because she knew him to be the Messiah. John wasn't there because he was looking for a promotion in the church, but because he had seen the Messiah and believed in him. His mother was there because she loved him and knew he was the Christ. Now I know you heard me say there are five subjects in this icon. The fifth, I would like you to direct your gaze to this skull down here. For it is very important. This is the skull of Adam. If you remember from the book Adam and Eve, the Genesis book, this is his skull, not a joke. The scripture makes reference to the name of the place of the crucifixion of Jesus, does it not? It calls it Golgotha. And then it translates for you always, which means place of the skull. Not because this is where crucifixions happened, but rather because in Jewish thought it was commonly believed that on this mountain where Christ was crucified lay the bones of Adam, the very first man. When he died, he was put to rest in this mountain. And therefore you have the balance of Adam, the first man, the one who brought sin into the world. Be very clear, we don't blame Eve. Get off it, feminists. We have Adam, the very first man who brought sin into the world. And we have Christ, the new Adam, who redeems sin, who redeems us from sin, who restores what Adam broke. Adam, who took fruit from a tree. Christ, who was crucified on a tree. Adam, who brought sin into the world. Christ, who would take it down. This is why it is the place of the skull. Because it is the site that Adam finally gave up his life. An action that was not natural to humanity before sin. And where Adam gave up his life, Christ would lay down his life to give new life to everyone. This is what our icon shows. The beautiful love of our Savior for each of us. Take some time this week and just stare at whatever your favorite image of Christ is. If you don't have one, then I suggest you find one. Let that be your homework this week.
Ask the Lord to reveal one to you. Take time to look at your life and see what the Lord has done in your past and know that he will still take care of you in the future. And take time to gaze on him in love. Look at him who looks at you so lovingly from the cross.